thank you, uh, those of you that were able to be at the seminar on Friday and uh, yesterday. We had uh, good attendance and we really had a good time together and studying about how we got the Bible. <clears throat> Am I the only one that thinks that Mike looks like the comedian Don Wrinkles? <laughs> yes, he does, and um, Don is dead, so I don't know what that says about Mike, but uh, anyway, which, uh, I look at him and I think uh, there's a similarity there for sure. I want to talk about something this morning that is a very important topic. You know, we can ask the question, who is saved and who is lost? And sometimes it's a little bit of an uncomfortable question, but it's a good question. It's, it's a fair question because we, we know a lot of people that are good people, they're religious people, they are uh, moral people, hardworking people. And, and so the question is really pretty natural to ask who's saved, are they saved, are they lost? And sometimes the answer can be a little bit confusing, but I believe that we can help ourselves a little bit this morning by looking at one Bible word. Just one Bible word, and the word is a Hebrew word, and it's pronounced berith, B-E-R-I-T-H. And the word berith, you might say, I think I've heard that word before, even though it's a Hebrew word, because there's actually a religious group that's called B'nai Berith, which means sons of the covenant. The word Berith is the Hebrew word translated into our word covenant. It's a word that occurs in the uh, Old Testament about 300 times. And so it's a, a fairly common word for sure. And it's the idea of a contract, an agreement, a binding disposition of some kind. And so that's basically what we're looking at when we look at this idea of a covenant. There actually are two Greek words that are translated into covenant, only one of which is found in the Greek New Testament, and that's pronounced diatheke, of course, 32 times in the Greek New Testament. And it has the idea of an irrevocable decision or a disposition, but is that which cannot be canceled uh, by someone. When we look in the Bible, there are basically two types of covenants. And you might be more familiar with this terminology than uh, I am, especially if you've got a legal background of some kind, then this language is more common to you than it would be to me, but... <clears throat> Generally, it's the idea of a bilateral covenant and a unilateral covenant. A bilateral covenant typically describes something that is between men or between equals. In the Bible, we see a number of these uh, bilateral covenants. For example, in Genesis chapter 31, we read about Jacob and Laban. You remember the story of how uh, Jacob had married Laban's two daughters. Well, he and Laban didn't particularly get along too well. And so Jacob had had enough and he decided that he was going to pack up and he was going to move to a faraway place and he was going to take Laban's daughters, his wives, <clears throat> of course, with him. 
When Laban found out that Jacob had snuck away, he goes chasing after him. And he does catch him. And as we read the Bible account there in Genesis chapter 31, uh, they do something that we would consider to be very weird. And that is they piled up a bunch of rocks and then they named that pile of rocks Galid. Galid, which is a heap of witness. And while we read that text in Genesis 31, it explains that Jacob and Laban made a covenant with each other. And that covenant was reflected by this pile of rocks, this Galid, because this is what it represented. There was only one road between where Laban lived and where Jacob was moving to. And so if Jacob was ever going to see Laban, or Laban was ever going to see Jacob, when they got to the pile of rocks, when they got to Galid, they had to stop and make a decision. If there was anger in their hearts, they made a promise, a covenant, if you will, that if there's anger in their hearts, they're going to turn around, turn around and go home. But if they could rid their hearts of the anger, then they could go on. All right, so they made this bilateral covenant. Sometimes maybe we need some Galids in our lives today too, a, a covenant that we're not going to stay mad. We're going to get over it and move on uh, with our lives. We read about men like David and Jonathan, best friends, that the covenant that David and Jonathan made with one another, and it was that which involved the giving of uh, some gifts, um, some personal effects. Um, it reminds us, you know, I've got a wedding ring on, and you see that ring. Well, you know what that means. You know that it represents that there is a covenant, a contract that I have with my wife, Kathy, and it's illustrated by the the ring, the a sign of a covenant that has been made. But we read about covenants between tribes, covenants between kings and other kings, sometimes kings and his people. There are lots of covenants that we read about in the Bible, but that's not the major covenant that we want to talk about uh, this morning. <clears throat> we want to talk about the other kind of the other covenant. What's called the unilateral covenant. The unilateral covenant is between God and man. And while some covenants between human parties might have some negotiated agreements, and we've all done this, we've been in a situation where maybe a, a, we're buying something and a particular price is set, and well, we don't want to pay that price, and so we offer a lower price. Like if you bought a house, maybe they've asked X number of dollars for the house, and you come at with the lower offer, and then maybe they come down and we go up, and eventually we come to an agreed price. Well, that's a covenant. It's a bilateral covenant where it's some give and take, but that's not the way it works with God. <clears throat> when God gives us His covenant, there is nothing in it of a bargain or a negotiation. It is what it is. It is a disposition or arrangement that originates from the superior party and it's given down to us, the inferior party. 
And we can accept it or we can reject it, but we can't change it. We can't alter it at all. This is the way God's covenant works. So you don't have to have a covenant relationship with God, but you can't change it. You have to accept it the way God has given it uh, to us. There are many examples of this uh, in the Old Testament. For example, turn in, to, in your Bibles to the book of Genesis, chapter 6, and you'll recall that this is the account of Noah and the flood where God tells Noah that he's going to send the flood. <clears throat> Genesis chapter 6, beginning with verse 13 Then God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. And behold, I am about to destroy them with the earth. Make for yourself an ark of gopher wood. You shall make the ark with rooms, <clears throat> shall cover it inside and out with pitch. And this is how you shall make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits, its breadth, 50 cubits, its height, 30 cubits. You shall make a window for the ark and finish it a cubit. Uh, from the top, and set the door of the ark in the side of it. Shall make it with lower, second, third decks. And behold, I, even I, am bringing the flood of water upon the earth to destroy all flesh, in which is the breath of life. From under heaven, everything that is on the earth shall die. All right, so here God tells Noah, this is what I'm going to do. This is why I'm going to do it. Now, if you want to survive this flood, build the ark. Build it this size, this wood, and you'll survive. Nowhere did we read in here Noah going, time out, God. Do you not realize how big that is? You not realize? Gopher wood? Seriously? It's going to be hard to come up with that much gopher wood. And it's, it's about a football field and a half long, by the way. That's big. But Noah doesn't do that. He doesn't come back to God and say, could we downsize just a little bit? Reduce that just so? Because if you look at the very next verse, what does your Bible say? Verse 18. But I will establish my covenant with you. There you go. This is what God is doing. So Noah, as we know the rest of the story, built the ark. He built it the way God designated and he lived. He survived the flood. And the reason he survived the flood was because he subjected himself totally to God's covenant. Didn't mess with it at all. Didn't try to change it, alter it, adjust it in any way. He just did what it is that God said. All right, let's go look at another Old Testament example of the covenant in Genesis chapter 17. This is actually a great chapter to study the idea of covenant because the word occurs 13 times just in this one chapter. We'll do a little bit of skipping around and then we'll read one longer section here after a bit. But notice verse 2, and we're in Genesis 17, verse 2. I will establish my covenant 
between me and you. Verse 4, as for me, behold, my covenant is with you. And then he changes his name from Abram to Abraham. Then in verse 7, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and you, your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. And I will give to you and to your descendants after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Cana for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. God said further to Abraham, Now as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised, and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin. It shall be the sign of the covenant between me and you. And every male among you who is eight days old shall be circumcised throughout your generations. A servant who is born in the house or who is bought with money from any foreigner who is not of your descendants. A servant who is born in the house or who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. Thus shall my covenant be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. But if an uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. All right, one of the predominant themes that we have in the book of Genesis is this land promise. Abraham leaves Ur of the Chaldees and he travels in the land of Canaan. And God is telling him from chapter 12 of Genesis on, you're going to receive this land. Well, in chapter 15, God assures Abram at that time that they were going to receive the land. But he doesn't at that time ask anything of Abram or Abraham. It's not until we get to chapter 17. God said, I am going to fulfill my promise and I'm now going to make a covenant with you. And then he says, this is the covenant. And he lays it out to Abraham and says, every male among you shall be circumcised. I don't care if he's a slave that you bought a slave that was born in your house, your son, a foreigner, I don't care. I want every male to be circumcised. All right, that is the covenant. Now, what have we learned? A covenant is a non-negotiable. It's a non-negotiable. And so Abraham doesn't have to do what God's asking, but he can't change what it is that God is telling him to do. I've had people tell me, and maybe you've had people tell you, I just don't believe that you need to be baptized to be saved, to to have forgiveness. And maybe it'll be said something like, the God that I know would never condemn someone just because they're not dunked in a vat of water. Have you ever had someone say that to you? But think about it from this perspective. Does the God you know, is he someone who would condemn someone for not going through a simple medical procedure? Would he condemn someone? 
that wouldn't go through a simple medical procedure? No, I don't think he'd do that. <clears throat> this is where we learn something about God right here. Because if you noticed in verse 14, God says, Every male among you who is not circumcised shall be cut off from among my people. He has broken my covenant. You know what that means? He's put to death. Wait a minute. He's put to death because he's not going to be circumcised? Yeah. Yeah. And the reason why, as the verse clearly says, he's broken my covenant. He is not going to be a part of my covenant family. Because he's not circumcised? Are you kidding me? Yeah. You see, we learn something about God and about God's covenant when we look at this example of circumcision in the Old Testament. God gives the covenant. You can't change it. You can't alter it. You can't ignore it and still expect to have a relationship with God. And that's the way it works. That's the way our relationship works with God. It's based upon our doing what it is that God has said. And we live in a religious world today that has done a lot of ignoring of what God has said, a lot of changing of what God has said in His Word. And it does, it can't, you can't do that because you don't understand God. Jesus said, John 17, 3, that eternal life is knowing God. Paul says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, 7 through 9, that the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven in flaming fire with his mighty angels, taking vengeance on them who know not God and obey not the gospel of Lord Jesus Christ. We've got to know God. We have got to know the way God is and the way God works. And if baptism is something that is a part of our New Testament covenant relationship, and it is, then we need to do it. We can't say, well, I don't think that God would condemn someone because you don't understand the covenant if you're going to go there. You would never go there if you understand the covenant because you're looking at the contract, that's what God says, and that's non-negotiable. Abraham learned that. Could Abraham have gone back to God and said, okay, I've heard what you said about circumcision, God, and I'm going to tell all the men uh, uh, what you've said, and I'm going to encourage all the parents to circumcise their boy babies on the eighth, eighth day. I've heard what you've said. I'm personally, though, going to pass on this. I'm, uh, you know I love you. You know how committed I am to you. You know that I left Ur the Chaldees. I left my family back there in order to do what you said. And so I'm assuming you're going to save me anyway, even though I'm going to pass on the circumcision. <laughs> you know how that would have gone, right? God said every male that's not circumcised is cut off. Every male, without exception. So when we learn about this idea of covenant, we're really learning about our relationship with God. Matter of fact, if we had the time, we could look at Exodus 19 and 20. In Exodus 19, the Israelites have been brought to the, mount, the, the foot of Mount Sinai. And God there tells them that He is going to make a covenant with them. 
He said, all the peoples of the earth are mine, but I'm choosing you. And I'm making a covenant with you. And then in Exodus chapter 20, he gives them the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments, which are called the tables or the tablets of the covenant. (laughs) That was their covenant relationship with God was that Mosaic law. And if they were not going to follow the Mosaic law, then they had no covenant with God. Look at Jeremiah chapter 31. Jeremiah chapter 31, and actually verse 31. Jeremiah 31, 31. This is a very important passage because it announces that God's going to make a new covenant. Read along with me, Jeremiah 31, we'll read 31 down through verse 34. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers, In the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant, which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach again each man his neighbor, and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. All right, so in this very important passage, we learn that God is announcing the day that he's going to make a new covenant. And when we look at this new covenant, it basically has four parts, four stipulations that are a part of this new covenant. First of all, we notice that this covenant has a lawful relationship or it's based upon law. He says, I will put my laws into their minds and I'll write them upon their hearts. Mike mentioned that I uh, have been working with the Bear Valley Bible Institute now for some time, but I also went there as a student uh, back in the 1970s. And when I was in my first year at Bear Valley, the director at the time, Norman Gibson was his name, called me into his office and he said, "Uh, Denny, the Pentecostal church down the street here has called and has invited one of our students to come and to make a presentation on what the churches of Christ believe about salvation. I said, that's great. And he said, and I'd like you to do it. Oh, no, he said, yeah, I'd like, I'd like you to do it. Well, I was uh, very, very nervous about this particular assignment, and I certainly did not trust my memory. And so I decided that I was going to script out what I was going to say word for word. And that would, that would be a help. 
And then I know this probably sounds a little bit odd to you now, but I also decided because of extreme nervousness that when I got to the Pentecostal building and I finished my talk, I was going to find the nearest exit. <laughs> and I was going to read what I had and I was going to bow it out the door. I was going to go. <clears throat> So the day came and the building was full and the Pentecostal preacher got up and said, this is Denny Petrillo. He's a student at the Bear Valley School of Preaching. That was what it was called back in those days. And he's here by our invitation to give a presentation on what the churches of Christ believe about salvation. Uh, Denny, welcome. Thank you for coming. And we'll turn it over to you. So I'm shuffling my papers and there happens to be an exit right there I'm thinking okay this is gonna work out <clears throat> so I'm just about to begin and the Pentecostal preacher jumps up and says wait I forgot to say that when Denny is finished we're gonna open it up for questions <sighs> nobody said anything about questions so I went through my talk, and then I looked around and I said, there wouldn't be any questions, would there? <laughs> well, about a thousand hands went up. Now, there was only about 50 people there, but it, was, it seemed like a thousand hands. <clears throat> so I acknowledged uh, an elderly gentleman in the back, and he stood up and he goes, Young man, they don't call me that as much as they used to, Mike. He said, young man, can you tell us any place in the New Testament that says that we are under law? Well, I don't remember using that terminology in my talk, but I definitely did say that there are some things that God requires of us, expectations that God requires of us. And I was able to think of two passages, Galatians 6.2, bear you one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ, and James 1.25 that talks about the law of liberty. Since then, obviously I've come up with a lot more law passages. Those were all I could think of at the time. But how about this passage from Jeremiah 31 that's quoted twice it's quoted twice in the book of Hebrews, once in chapter 8 and once in chapter 10. And it's talking about our covenant, your covenant and mine, <clears throat> on this side of the cross. God says, those people that are a part of this new covenant, I'm going to put my law in their minds and hearts. Wow. God wants us to know His law. As a matter of fact, Here's a little trivia for you. Have you ever noticed that the inspired writer of the book of Hebrews changes the terminology? In chapter 8, he talks about that I will put my law in their minds and I will write it on their hearts. <clears throat> but then in chapter 10, he writes it on the mind and he puts it in the heart. Ever notice that? Why would he do that? I don't know. He doesn't tell us. 
But I do know this. It makes us slow down long enough to think about the point. The point is, God wants His law to be in here. It's something that we know. It's something that we've studied. It's something that we have memorized. His law is not something that's in a book on a shelf somewhere. But we have internalized it. We have put it in our minds. We know what it says. And so when we live our lives day after day, we're not wondering, what does God want me to do? Sunday doesn't roll around and say, I wonder what I should do today. We know what God's law says, and here we are. We're assembling on the first day of the week, which is exactly what our covenant relationship with God says we need to be doing. You put it in your minds, but you also put it in your hearts. You know, one of the things that I know and I say is I've got my wife, Kathy, in my heart. I love her more than any person on this planet. What does that mean, though, to say that you've got someone in your heart? Well, there's an emotional attachment. There's a devotion. There's a commitment. There's a dedication that you have um, uh, to her. Well, God wants His law to be in our hearts. What does that mean? Dedication, love. Just like the psalmist would say, Oh, how love I thy law. It's my meditation all the day. That's what God wants. He wants us to know His law intellectually, but love it emotionally. That's the kind of relationship that we have. That's the kind of contract that we have with God with this law. All right. The second stipulation of this new covenant shows that it's going to be a stable relationship and the stability is provided by God's grace. He says, I will be merciful to their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. That word mercy lines up with our word grace. God said, I'm going to be graceful to them in their iniquity. So we're going to mess up. We're going to have iniquities. We're going to sin. But the stability is found in that God sets us back on our feet. We sin. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23 There's none righteous. No, not one. Romans 3.10 So we know that we're going to mess up. But God provides the stability in this new covenant contract by being merciful, by giving grace. Unfortunately, grace is one of the most misunderstood concepts in the religious world today. My very first preaching job was in a little town in North Mississippi. Como, Mississippi was the name of that place. And one day I got a call from someone I didn't know, but he said, um, this is, is this Denny Petrillo? I said, yes. And he says, I understand you know Hebrew, the language. And I said, yes, I do. He said, would you teach me Hebrew? I said, sure. Well, his name was Steve, and he was a preacher at a denomination that was also in Como. And Steve and I got together every Tuesday afternoon, and we studied Hebrew. And over the course of the next couple of months, we became very good friends. And so one day I asked Steve a question. I said, Steve, 
Is it possible for someone to be saved who is not yet forgiven? Is it possible for someone to be saved who's not yet forgiven? And I said, while you're thinking about that question, think about it in light of Acts 2 and verse 38. So he turned his Bible to Acts 2 and verse 38, which says, And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So he's looking at Acts 2.38. He's thinking about the question. And he goes, we'll all be. I said, what? He said, I have been teaching this wrong for years. Because I've been teaching that people are saved at the point of faith. But this verse is indicating that a person is saved, they receive forgiveness... When they repent and are baptized. Because a person can't be saved who's not yet forgiven. And they're forgiven when they repent or are baptized. So he said, I've been teaching that wrong. And I said, Steve, that's, that's great. I said, you've got an entire congregation of people that have been taught incorrectly. So what are you going to do about that? And here was his response. Nothing. I said, nothing. He said, yeah, grace, grace will cover them. And I said, no, Steve, grace will not cover them. You see, grace is for those who are trying to do what's right and fail. Grace is not for someone that just doesn't do what God said. That would be equivalent to Abraham saying, I'm going to pass on the circumcision, but... Save me by your grace anyway. It doesn't work that way. That's not the way God's covenant contract works. We do what God says. We study His Word. We've got it in our minds. We've got it in our hearts. We're doing our best to do all that God has asked. But we'll mess up. And then God provides the stability by giving us His grace. You see... Going back to Steve and the Acts 2, the people on the day of Pentecost already believed. You ever notice that? The text says they were pricked to their heart and they said, men and brethren, what shall we do? At that point, they were already at the point of faith. They believed in what Peter had just said that this Jesus whom you crucified, God has made both Lord and Christ. What are we going to do? We know what you're saying is true. We believe that's true. Peter didn't say, all's well, you believe, you're good. He said, every one of you, every one of you needs to repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus. And according to that text right there in Acts 2, there were about 3,000 people that did exactly that. Well, what did they do? Well, to frame it in the way that we're looking at it right now, is they established a covenant with God. They, they became a part of God's covenant family because they did exactly what it is that God wanted them to do. In the third part of this covenant, 
from Jeremiah 31. We talked about it's a lawful relationship. Second, that it's a stable relationship because of God's grace. Third, it's an ongoing relationship. It's an ongoing relationship. He says, all shall know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. Well, in the Old Covenant, the law of Moses, baby was circumcised at eight days old, right? Then he was brought up to learn about the Lord. We read about that in passages like Deuteronomy 6, 4 and following. Uh, that you talk about the Lord when you rise up and when you lie down and when you go on the way, bind them as frontals on your forehead and on the lintels of your house. So the child grows up learning about God. Not, that's not the way it works in the new covenant. The new covenant, everybody's going to know me from the least to the greatest, from the new convert to the person that's been a Christian for a long time. And that's because in the new covenant, it's a decision that you make, not a decision someone makes for you. It's a decision that you make when you're old enough to understand the significance of that decision. You're old enough to believe. That's why infant baptism is really uh, something that doesn't make any sense in the new covenant. All shall know me that's a part of the covenant family. So this covenant contract is based upon our learning about and our knowing God. Turn to 1 John chapter 2. First John chapter 2, we'll begin reading with verse 3. And by this we know that we have come to know Him, if we keep His commandments. The one who says, I have come to know Him, and does not keep His commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. The one who says that he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. John is not not pulling any punches here. The one who says, I know God, but doesn't do what God has commanded, John says, liar. Could you soften that a little bit, John? No, liar. If you don't do what God said, then you don't know him. And you shouldn't be saying that you know him. Because if you truly know God, you're going to keep his commandments. That's what he says very clearly in this this passage. This new covenant that Jeremiah is talking about that we're a part of. All shall know me from the least to the greatest well if you know God you keep his commandments and if you know God you know that his commandments involve a number of things that some of which we've already talked about being a part of the church that Jesus built being baptized into Christ uh, being a good father or a good mother or uh, a good husband or wife a good worker and the various things that God has prescribed for us. If we know God, we know what that means on what I do on Sundays and Mondays and Tuesdays. 
if you know me, then you're going to be keeping my commandments. <clears throat> and then the last stipulation of this new covenant, it's an exclusive relationship. Do you have golf clubs here that are exclusive? You have to be a member. They're not going to just let anybody come and play there. <laughs> well, we understand this idea of exclusive. I remember even when I was much younger looking at this passage and asking the question, who is the they? Because the text says, and I will be their God and they will be my people. Who is he talking about? Well, he's talking about those people that are part of this new covenant. They've signed off on this new contract. You know what's interesting is we've been talking about the word covenant, but it's actually the same word as testament. And it's also... Well, let me, before I go on, <clears throat> Old Testament, Old Covenant, New Testament, New Covenant. But it's also the same word as will. You have a will? Have you made a will? Well, you know how that works, that you're leaving your estate to those who are named in the will. That's the they. I will be their God and they will be my people. This is saying very clearly that not everybody's going to be saved. Even Jesus taught that. That we talk about the gates that lead to destruction are wide and many are them that go through that. But the, the gate that leads to eternal life is narrow and difficult and few there are that enter therein. I'm going to be their God. Who, who are we talking about? The people that are willing to follow my covenant. They're going to be named in God's will. You know, the Bible describes this book. It, I wish there was more information about it. The book of life. And in this book of life is, are the names of everyone that's a part of God's covenant family. And according to the Revelation 20, 11 and following on the day of judgment... There are going to be books that are opened, which are the books by which we're going to be judged. Our law book will be the New Testament. We're going to be judged by the gospel of Jesus Christ. But then another book is going to be opened, which is the book of life. And if your name is not found in the book of life, then you're going to go into the lake of fire. It's an exclusive relationship. Those people whose names are in that book are those that have established a covenant relationship with God. We started out by asking the question, who's saved and who's lost? Hopefully this helps some in a, a complex subject, but the idea of covenant really helps me because it lays it out, this is what God has said, you do what He said in the, the Bible then you're a part of his covenant family. And your name's going to be written in that book of life. You are one that's going to be in God's will. That's going to receive his blessings, his promises and eternal life. Heaven. Because your name is in the book of life. 
But that's because you are part of God's covenant family. You did what he said. You didn't minimize, eliminate, change anything. But you did what it is that God asked you to do in his covenant book, the word of God. Thank you very much for your attention.